Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 4, and I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today we're talking with author Phyllis Currett. Over the years, I've followed Phyllis Currett's rise towards helping raise awareness of paganism and also to help secure rights that many pagans take for granted today. A lot has changed since I became a pagan in the early 80s. We certainly didn't have many of the rights we enjoy today, as we had a hard time being able to obtain permission to have public celebration or ritual, as well as rent places to hold events, and more. I've seen many people represented by the pagan community on the news or talk shows and documentaries, as Phyllis has certainly been one of the more respectable, accessible, and well-spoken advocates that we had. As a writer, Phyllis has shared much of her life and become a very public figure, who shared her personal journey in her autobiography, Book of Shadows. Phyllis Karat is an attorney, writer, and one of America's first public witches. Her five international best-selling books have been published in 14 languages, making her the most widely published Wiccan author. An outspoken advocate of the courts and media, she handled or consulted on groundbreaking cases, securing the legal rights of witches, including cases of child custody, religious assembly, organization, expression, and free speech. I remember these cases, and I think it's easy to forget these things over time. So many pagans have fought so hard for freedoms that many of us now enjoy and could lose quickly again with the growing trends against religious freedom in America. Phyllis is named one of the 10 Gutsiest Women of the Year by Jane Magazine and inducted into the Martin Luther King Jr. Colloquium of Clergy and Scholars. She received the 2018 Service for Humanity Award from the One Spirit Interfaith Seminary and the 2020 Person of the Year Award from Kindred Spirits. Phyllis was the first Wiccan trustee of the Parliament of World Religions and was elected vice chair of the 2015 Parliament, creating the Women's Assembly and served as the program chair for historic 2021 Parliament, attended by Patrick Bartholomew of the Eastern Orthodox Church and blessed by Pope Francis. New York Magazine has called her teaching on witchcraft, the culture's next big idea. And Time Magazine has published her in one of America's leading thinkers. Her YouTube series on Wicca has almost 3 million views. Phyllis continues to write, teach, and lecture internationally on the embodied spiritual wisdom of Mother Earth. Nature's secret magic and why the world needs its witches. She is a program chair of the 2023 Parliament of World's Religions in Chicago. I'm going to take you now to my conversation with author, activist, priestess, Phyllis Currett. Hello and welcome to Calling the Quarters podcast. Today, I am very privileged to be talking with author, high priestess, vice chair emerita of the Parliament of World's Religions, one of America's gutsiest women as voted by Jane Magazine. Welcome, Phyllis Currett. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to disclose before we begin that I believe I was able to meet you years ago at an assembly of pagans called BAPA, Bay Area Pagan Assemblies in Palo Alto, years ago. I was able to talk with you. I think it was a public ritual where you talked and talked about paganism. Um, I just was really impressed by how down to earth you were and how you were willing to talk to everybody. And you just were so generous. Uh, so I, that was a very fond memory of uh, being able to see you before. Thank you. That's People say that a lot, and I'm always kind of surprised. Like, well, what else? What what else would one be? You know, <laughs> practicing truly engaged in an earth-based faith, we would be as grounded as and as real. And the you know, the older I've gotten, you know, the 
it's just you you if you're not real you know if you're not just who you are you're wasting an awful lot of time and energy on the wrong thing so you know it's about it's about just being real and i have always been um just grateful to be on this path and so happy to share it with the with those who want to know and to advocate <laughs> on behalf of us with those who don't know but need to um because i really do believe the world needs our witches so yeah, well, you know, I, <laughs> I wanted to say too i mean through the years you've always been a um a very uh public presence in the pagan community and you've been a great spokesperson somebody who's always been there and been very grounded and you you know you're, you've got a wonderful presence and I've always appreciated when I've seen you on a television show representing the pagan community I was always grateful it was you because <laughs> it was always kind of a relief because you've always been so professional and you've always been so respectable and I, re I, I really appreciate that as a pagan thank you um the thing missing from my tiny bio was that I have also been an attorney from the very beginning. It was actually because I was an attorney that I ended up becoming more public uh, because of the cases that I was taking on that represented witches and Wiccans and pagans and fighting for First Amendment rights in various forms. So either I was the attorney or I was advising or trying to find other attorneys or working with the civil liberties unions in different places around the country. And, um, and being a lawyer was also one of the reasons that uh, I got my first book deal. I mean, they were very honest, you know, we're not really interested in somebody wearing Birkenstocks living in a commune, <laughs> what makes it interesting. And it's one reason that I did so much public media. Uh, they were interested in the fact that somebody and the question always was, one of the first questions was, well, how could you possibly be a lawyer and be a witch, you know? And I'd crack a joke and say, well, you know, the lawyer's the dark side, um, which it wasn't, I was a social justice lawyer, but you know, a joke always helps. But it was the fact that I was quote normal, you know, that I was uh, a professional, that I was uh, an attorney, a hyper-rationalist and, and simultaneously which, but also somebody willing to be public. I mean, I've been public since really 1981, 82, um, increasingly so as the years went by. And I, I, I did it because I was crazy. <laughs> and I felt, <laughs> well, well, somebody's gotta do this, you know, because these distortions are horrifying and they're fear inducing, they're meant to keep people quiet, right? They were especially meant to keep women quiet, to silence them. And yet here's this broken, but nonetheless vital body of holy wisdom, of practices, not, not theories and not dogma and not beliefs and not, you know, but practices, old, shamanic, real, that worked and that transformed our ability to see the world that we lived in and to understand it, to, to be open to it, to learn from it, to rediscover all the things that we've forgotten. And that 
because of that, we were destroying the planet. And yet here was an indigenous, our indigenous wisdom system that was just waiting for our rediscovery. And so it was like, well, the world needs our witches. The world needs witches' wisdom. You know, somebody's got to do it. And I, so I did it, but I did it as a lawyer. I did it as an advocate, you know, I did it rationally. Um, I knew that the people who were listening to me, especially 40 years ago, really had, you know, the most vicious kinds of stereotypes. And so when I spoke, I spoke aware of that distortion in their lens of perception, and I tried to correct for it. So it was important to show that witches are um, normal people, you know, that we are soldiers and, and school teachers and lawyers and uh, housewives and uh, podcasters, because that was an essential part of beginning to challenge and change that stereotype. So I appreciate you saying that. It, it was a risk, you know, it certainly put my professional life at risk. And I did when my first book came out uh, in 98, Book of Shadows, I paid a price. I lost some of my uh, more conservative uh, clients from my very successful uh, law practice in New York City, uh, no question. But um, I have absolutely no regrets, absolutely none. There's no question that this was um, a responsibility that I was prepared to undertake, that I felt called to undertake, and a role that I was ideally suited to. So I appreciate, you know, I didn't do it to be seen, I did it to advocate, but it 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 certainly feels good as one comes into cronehood, dotage, final stages, looking at one's legacy, you know, and to, to hear somebody say, thank you, I appreciated that you did it and I appreciate the way you did it. That's very, I, I used to just work without regard for how it was received within the community. I just did what I felt had to be done. But it is nice after so many years, very nice. It, it, it's very, um, it's a gift and I receive it. And I, so thank you. I, I really appreciate you saying that. Thank well, I think you. I was so grateful mostly because when I would see you on a television show or news or something, you, I, I, mean, I wanna like preface this like so that the listener understands. I people were on a TV show like Maury or whatever, they would always come on looking like they came, did they just step out of a Renaissance festival, usually with all the pagan bling and everything, you know, like they just came out of a ritual or something. And like you would come on and you look normal, like somebody that was at work or at the store or, you know, PTA meeting, you were like there, like somebody who people knew. And I think that, did you just disappoint a lot of uh, people on TV? Were they expecting all the bling and woo-woo and you come out, you know, just like anybody else? And they're like, oh, were they disappointed? No, I, that was why they booked me. <laughs> yeah. That's what made it interesting, right? Now, some shows wanted and still want um, the images that are part of the stereotype. You know, it may not be the tattoos on the face and the black clothes and the goth thing that was big for yeah. a while um and that was certainly what some uh shows were looking for to play into that stereotype um but you know i'm a thinking person's witch 
and right um and we all need to think a lot more and it was that yes what was shared with me was uh from folks on the other side you know who were talking to me the reporters and well um or the the hosts of shows the producers was the fact that i was a lawyer in new york city i'd had an ivy league background you know um I was a film producer for a while, independent film producer with working with a very successful director. I mean, I was, you know, how was that possible? How could you possibly be a witch? That was fascinating. Um, and looking normal was an essential part of people paying attention to the substance of what I had to say, to people being able to hear me. Um, because I wasn't, um, I wasn't confirming their stereotype. I was challenging it, and that's why I was public was to challenge all those stereotypes. And so, looking normal was the very first um, challenge to the stereotype. And also, you know, if you look familiar, people will stop and listen to you. If you don't look, if you look odd and peculiar, then you're in the other tribe, and it's hard for them to hear you. But if they recognize you, um, then they will stop and listen. And then it's also how you speak to people. You know, you have to yeah. speak in a way that people can understand. You know, you have to. I mean, I have a tendency to go on a bit, and I can be a little heady. <laughs> you know, I was. A, a, I got my degree in philosophy. You know, Brown. I'm, I like yeah. it. I like it good, you know, meaty kind of conversation. But being public also taught me and doing lots of press, you know, I had to do three minute interviews, live radio shows at six o'clock in the morning, you know? Oh so yeah, yeah. You learn to open with a joke, right? Yeah, but, yeah. And if you can't say it simply, then you perhaps you really don't understand it. Being public was a blessing to me because it required me to rethink a lot of what I had been taught and just sort of accepted because I was part of a neo-Gardnerian tradition. My priestesses had been Gardnerian initiates and then started the Minoan tradition, which was all men, the brotherhood, and all women, the sisterhood. And that was very controversial very controversial at the time for more than 40 years ago um but the what, what, what was my point oh that that i was taught certain things you know that that we came that there was an unbroken lineage uh, you know hereditary tradition and lineage that the, the myths of our origin um but even more many of the ways that we practiced um, invoking the earth. We were always gesturing up and out. You know, we yeah. were looking off into heavens when we were invoking Mother Earth. There were a lot of remnants of the ceremonial magical traditions and therefore sort of in the Abrahamic perspective that, that the divine was in elsewhere in realms of spirit that we had access to it, that was different from Abrahamic traditions, right? That that through our methods of casting circle and invoking the divine and 
the chanting and the dancing and invocations um, that we could bring the sacred to us, that we could open ourselves to it and experience it. But in doing that, I was really blessed like, because I started doing core shamanic work at the same time. And that te those techniques, particularly of journeying, that open your consciousness so that you're able to, to see and to experience realms of spirit that we're ordinarily not paying attention to. The, it took many years because it was so extraordinary to be able to work in realms of spirit. It's taken me most of, I certainly the first half of my work as a witch to wake up and recognize that when I returned to ordinary consciousness, I was still seeing the sacred. It was embodied. It was embodied by the world that I lived in. It wasn't just in realms of spirit. Spirit had form, it had life. It, it was the world, the natural world that I lived in and some of that lived in me. That was a big shift. Um, that was a really big shift. And to be able to express that to people in ways that they could understand um, initially, it seemed to me that witchcraft had a, a kind of, um, and it still does, I think, a kind of, um, it had to be hidden. And so there was an appeal in that hidden thing, right? That you knew something nobody else did, right? And that made yeah. you sense. And now I feel the opposite, you know? I feel that what witches know, who really are wise, who really practice and who have opened themselves to the wisdom of the sacred, especially embodied by the natural world, is a truth that's true for all things, for all beings, not just humans, but all beings, right? For, for trees and birds and bugs in, in the, you know, in the ground and mycelium and fungus in my, you know, and microbes in my body. And that the holy wisdom is true for all of life. And so what's important about what we do and what we know can't be hidden. It can't be a right. whole. It has to be shared with the whole world because without it, the world will die. It's kind of extreme, but that's, it's just true. Without indigenous wisdom, I think we're doomed. With it, I think the magic of rebirth um, will manifest through us and enable the earth to do it in the ways that she's done it for 6 billion years in healthy ways and in life-sustaining ways. And I think that's the real reason that, I think that's the real reason that witchcraft is becoming the fastest growing spirituality in the United States. Truly. Not, most people wouldn't say that, but I think that's why. And in 20 years or 10 years or even five years, more people will be saying it. I, I absolutely agree with you. I want to take you back to the beginning. Uh, do you want to talk about your childhood in Long Island yeah. and how your parents influenced who you are? Sure. Um, well, my parents were um, remarkable. My father came from a Scandinavian family. All the men went to sea. He went to sea when he was 12 years old. He was basically orphaned in a sense. His, his father was at sea and his mother died. And he went to sea when he was 12 and became a union organizer. Of the, he was one of the founders of the National Maritime Union. 
in the 1930s. Wow. Um, and was in the Navy and then the Merchant Marine during the Second World War. And my mother came from a very well-to-do Jewish family, um, went to Barnard during the Depression, gave up her master's to become a community organizer with the, the, with the NAACP uh, before it was called the Civil Rights Movement in the 1930s and the early 40s. Um, they were remarkable. They really were, they were not religious at all. They were very left and very brave and some of the most spiritual people, you know, in fact, now I, you know, they believed in the goodness of the human heart and that's what they taught me. And they taught me the golden rule. And I remember I, when I was a kid, I asked them, you know, part of my friends were Catholic and some of my friends were Jewish and they were going, to Catholic school and they were going, you know, to Hebrew school in the afternoon. And I said to my mom, you know, what are we? And my, uh, my father overheard the conversation and she sat me down. She said, well, we believe in, in the goodness of the human heart. And we don't believe in a God that rewards you with heaven or punishes you with hell. We believe it's up to us that we're responsible for creating the world we live in. And that if we live according to the golden rule, do treat others the way you would like to be treated, that the world will be the place it's meant to be. And my dad said, he chipped in and he said, you're half Viking and half Maccabee. That makes you all warrior. <laughs> I <laughs> Six love that. years old, the die was cast. So I grew up with that, you know, and my parents had friends who were black and Jewish and union organizers and Oh, you know, I grew up in that milieu. And so, um, but they were also the victims of the Red Scare. Oh, God. They were pursued during the McCarthy period, uh, particularly my father. Oh, Jesus. And I didn't know that until I was uh, 14, when my mother sat me down because the, the anti-war movement was going on and I was starting to show an interest in uh, what was happening in the world around me. And she sat me down and she told me, and that explained a lot of the sorrow and the anxiety in uh, the household that I grew up in, which I never really understood, right? What was the source of it? Um, my father was a hero whose, whose life had been badly damaged and his spirit somewhat broken. And my mother was a hero, you know, who women, you know, women have a different way of coping, right? Um, right. So, and I was the child of promise and I didn't really understand, you know, what the dynamics were until she explained it to me and grew up and really began to understand. So I was a, what they called a red diaper baby. So I always had a very sophisticated political sensibility um, I, I have a very sophisticated political, I mean, I can analyze, you know, I, I understood everything, all the dangers with, um, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, all these people, and Gorka, all these people immediately, as soon as they appeared on the scene, I said, and as soon as he used the phrase, make America great again, you know, I, you know, I knew the history of his family, you know, and the fact that his alliance with the Ku Klux Klan and the fascist movement in Queens and all this stuff. I was like, ah, 
<laughs> you know, yeah. this is a this is American fascism. So I was raised with all that sensibility and a really finely tuned political radar system. Um, and I was not meant for a spiritual life. I was meant to be a political activist. And that was why I became a lawyer. And I began my career as a young lawyer fighting organized crime and trade unions uh, to try to clean up unions so that they could be democratic institutions working on behalf of uh, their members um, because unions had been so corrupted during the McCarthy period and right that in cleaning out the left wing part of the of the union trade union movement in this country, um, they left it open to the um, to organize crime and corruption. So that was my focus and that was my intention. I expected to follow in the footsteps of my social justice parents and um, and be a social justice lawyer. That was how I started out. Um, and then I was led to a coven of witches in New York. <laughs> and suddenly my path took a very, a very different turn, but the same, very different, but the same, right? We're living well, to the world a better place, but not just for humans, for, for all beings now. Yeah. You had a degree uh, originally in uh, philosophy and then you got one in law and you, you, your um, early career was like, I read the Wikipedia page and it's just so impressive because there's enough here for like a pretty big biography. But you worked, um, as well as what you mentioned, you worked in the entertainment industry, and um, you also campaigned for Ralph Nader, which is very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, like, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I, I wasn't a, a big activist campaigner for him. I ended up on a, a CNN show, and they asked me to advocate on him. <laughs> Essentially, I, you know. That's what they were like, could you speak to, you know, Ralph Nader? And I, it was funny, whatever I said on his behalf afterwards, the, the Democratic analyst that was on the show with me um, said, you, you advocate better for him than he advocates for himself. It's like, well, <laughs> I can I see had, that. I can see yeah, that. I worked for my very first job was uh, for the Professional Drivers Council. The short name was Prod, and it was a a reform organization inside the Teamsters Union. And I was um, right out of law school and um, I had been picked by their board to be their, um, their director, their public safety advocate, their lawyer, you know, to basically, you know, be their staff person in Washington, DC. And it had been Ralph Nader who had started that organization years before. And then it was taken over by the union, by union activists themselves. Um, but I was, it, it, the connections were still there and the support um, was still there. Um, and the relationship of support and guidance was there. And I learned how to be a safety advocate with the assistance and the guidance of the Ralph of Ralph Nader's really brilliant team of lobbyists and and lawyers, and so uh, I learned from them. So when he ran, I I was I advocated on his behalf. In fact, I thought it was a bad the the second time you know that he was ended up being a spoiler. 
Um, and one of the things, you know, that if you're making an astute political analysis, you know that one of the sad things about our country is that it we only have two parties. Yeah. It's very hard to establish a third party when one of the parties is essentially fascist or, you know, what, what it was for a long time, it was just fascist light. Um, right. Yeah. Now it's now there's no, now there's no veil. <laughs> now it's full fat. It's the full deal. It's full on. Yeah. We still don't realize fully. They don't understand, but that's because we have not had proper political analysis in this country for a really long time. So no. people, people are asleep. They don't get what's happening and they don't understand the tremendous dangers that are still at play. Yeah. Oh, well, Absolutely. that's another subject for another time. So, um, so yes, my, um, my career started in Washington, DC. I came out of law school. I'd had these extraordinary spiritual experiences that I had no framework for that, that was essentially a shamanic break when the goddess started leading me. Um, and it started in law school. It stopped when I went to Washington to work for Prod, and then I worked for Teamsters for a Democratic Union because the organizations merged. Um, and I ended up coming back to New York to work for a foundation that I'd worked for as a law student called the Association for Union Democracy, fighting organized crime and trade unions. More, you know, broader. The first was just the Teamsters. Now it was like wherever, wherever we were needed in whatever union uh, there was activity to throw out corruption. That's where we worked. And, um, and the, the magic that it had started in law school had stopped in Washington. It's a company town. And I think it's very magical, you know, because all those Masons set it up, but <laughs> yeah, well, all the energy now is pretty flat. So but the yeah. magic stuff, when I got back to New York and I started working for this foundation, um, it's, it's, it it started again and um slowly but it started and i was led i was led to this coven in new york and it was it was an impossible it was impossible i mean it was insane it was ridiculous <laughs> i was like what are you talking about witches don't be ridiculous I, you know i have to, i'm dealing with organized crime right now this is like the real world you know witches this is like the, too weird for words and let's just um put that in on the shelf in a box <laughs> but it turned out it's where I was supposed to be and the signs were incontrovertible and I had the good sense to go back so yeah my early life was interesting I managed a rock and roll band I worked I went from the foundation my grant ended and there were no more funds and so I, I went to work for one of the most prestigious entertainment firms in the country Weiss, my back and bombs are. And, uh, and I worked there for a while. Um, and then I went off, I was off on my own very early as a young lawyer. I was representing a lot of comic book writers and artists. Oh, really? Yes. Well, a lot of guys. Um, yeah, that was how I paid my bills for a couple of years. You published Book of Shadows in 1998, and you reprinted it in 2019. I want to mention this right now, even though it's going to tie in with like both past and you know that present. Um, 
this was a seminal work for you and it was you've written quite a few books which we're gonna we're gonna circle back to but this book was really big for you because it put you on the map but it also put your life out there for everybody to see what it was like for you to publish this book was it scary at all to put this book out at that time um you know it's an odd thing about me and i cannot explain it to you i mean we started with my parents and so maybe you know the the early upbringing and the sorrow and fear that was a potent force in my household with with parents who should have been joyful and honored and at peace in their lives right um, and not worried um i think there was something that registered on me like if they're going to come get me i'm going to do it all out in public right um, come get me you know, come get me fuckers. You know, I was just like, there was something that happened that made me irrationally willing to step into the breach that, that armed me. Um, certainly, I mean, I went to law school to arm myself, you know, with a sword and a shield. Um, to put the law to service, to justice, um, rather than profit. And, and then it ended up that, that the place that I was supposed to do that was on behalf of a spirit, you know, uh, a demeaned and uh, brutalized spiritual community. Um, so when it came time to write the book, I mean, fools rush in from a writing point of view. I didn't know how to write. Um, I'd never undertaken anything like it. I mean, the original draft was, well, draft was 500 pages. Um, they asked me initially, I mean, I was approached by a number of very prominent literary agents and I picked the Linda Chester agency. Um, and I was asked initially the Virginia Barbara Agency suggested that I write a book about sort of the history of witchcraft. Um, a little bit more like um, um, Pam Grossman's book, kind of, you know, sort of cultural perspective. And I didn't want to write that book. I was like, no, people are moved by stories. I want to write my story. I want to write the story of how in the world a hyper-rational, very pragmatic, I mean, you know, idealistic, deeply idealistic, irrationally idealistic, but, you know, very pragmatic, intellectual, with, you know, Boku creds in that department, Ivy League school, you know, top law school in the country, ends up in what seems to be the least the least sensible, most irrational, craziest thing you could ever imagine. How could that happen? I want to tell that story. I want to tell that story. And through telling that story, I get to open this incredible, magical, divine, holy, real world 
to tell the truth. I get to tell the truth and I get to do it in a way that I think will, I hope will move people. And that's all I thought about. And I enjoyed writing. Um, I didn't know how to write. I was, I was blessed to have good editors to help me, you know, shape it and put it forward. And I was blessed for it to come out at a time when publishers supported authors and sent them on book tours. I was not afraid. I was a little nervous, like when I had to go on Fox. Um, but I... Understandably so. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't as bad then as it is now, but it was bad. Um, yeah. I wasn't afraid. I was excited and happy to do it. I worked hard to... I trained, I prepped to do media work. I got a media trainer and I learned how to do it. Um, and it was helpful to me, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of dropped the dropped that thread, but uh, especially when it came time to write the second book to follow up. And the, being public required me to explain things in simple, straightforward ways um, that people could understand, that anyone could understand. And in doing that, it led me to re-examine a lot of what I was taught and to critique the parts of it that didn't make sense, that were leftovers from a patriarchal Abrahamic faith. And so by having the courage of my convictions, I found my convictions clarified and deepened. It was the best thing I could ever have done. I wasn't afraid. I paid a price for it. Like I mentioned, I lost clients, I lost income, I had, I got hate mail. I was living in an apartment in New York and I had a doorman and I was very glad that I did. Um, I got some phone calls that were very disturbing. Um, it was, that was worrying. I'm, I would be more worried now than I was then because there is a higher proportion of crazy violence now than yeah. There but I, I didn't have a choice. You can't practice this spirituality in fear. And it was just, and it was, and it is clear to me that the world needs this wisdom. And so that's my job. I'm an advocate. You know, you got to walk your talk. Otherwise, you know, there's a, I mean, maybe that from my upbringing, you know, that I saw the sorrow in my parents because they were not able, they were not allowed to walk their talk, right? Um, and how brokenhearted they were. And I was just determined that would not be me, you know? And maybe someday it will be because the force of what can be unleashed on you as too many people have learned in the last you know, few years as fascist forces have been rallied by social media. Um, and even us, we do it to ourselves. You know, we, we deplatform people. Um, yes. Uh, you know, I, I've been spared the worst um, and I have felt it's because I had a job to do, you know, we'll see. <laughs> You can't do this. You cannot. You cannot practice this faith in fear. You can't. No. 
Well, that's it. You talk in the, sorry, you talk in the book about your, sorry, let me, I'll edit this out. You talk in the book about your discovery of Wicca and your initiation into it and also receiving your craft name. Can you talk about this for our listeners who haven't read the book? Um, it's a lot, right? And I know we don't have lots of time and I, I, I can go on. Um, so when I was, yeah, my craft name. So being led to it was extraordinary. And that was the tale of the Libyan Sybil who had been appearing in my dreams when I was in law school. I got very sort of psychically opened up. I could tell, I knew the answers in classes without having read the cases. I knew what people were gonna say before they said it. I knew when the phone was gonna ring and, and who would be on the phone. I mean, it was like this sudden opening of consciousness. And I read all these you know, quantum physics books and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. So I get that there's more you know, going on, but why, right? I still don't understand the why. And the why was because I was meant to be, you know, the goddess had called me basically and she scattered these breadcrumbs and I followed them because I couldn't argue with the reality of what I had experienced in with this open sensibility. And the figure that I had dreamt of several times when I was in law school, having these spontaneous shamanic breaks appeared. A friend had taken me to have my tarot cards read and I was very impressed. She took me to the magical child. And Oh uh, yeah, nice. As, as stereotypical as you could imagine, you know, the mm -hmm. jars along the wall and the and the yeah. bad lighting and the and the too much incense smoke and like and Herman Slater behind the counter, who of was course. a gargoyle of of mammoth proportions and a wonderful mm -hmm. wonderful soul, uh, but who played that role really well. Yeah. <laughs> you can imagine I'm coming in with my little briefcase and my little, you know, my little bow, um, uh, and my shoulder pads. <laughs> At the end of that reading, um, you know, I she said, "What's your question?" And I just said, "Where does the path lie?" Because the magic had stopped when I was in Washington, and I wanted it back. I wanted that sensibility that I'd lost. And she said, "It lies within." And I said, "How do I get there?" Because I was a social justice lawyer, so everything was externally driven. I wasn't. There was no inner, you know. None of this new age, spirituality, none of this stuff, right? Um, make the world a better place. People's lives will be better. Simple. Um, that was my focus. She was not an intellect, just quite the contrary, but that was a smart answer. And then she read my cards. And when she was done, she invited me. She said, I think you'll find what you're looking for. I have a women's group. It means you might like to come. I thanked her, I paid her, I left. I had no intentions of ever going back. And it was months later and I was walking around, my grant money had ended. I was walking around the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they'd opened a new wing and I walked in, it was beautiful. This is statue garden, fountains, main, it's beautiful. And I'm walking through and I'm, you know, what am I going to do next? And I'm having trouble finding a job. And 
the unions won't, even the progressive unions won't hire me. And what am I going to do? What have I done to my life? <laughs> um, and suddenly sitting in front of me is the figure in my dreams. It was lar slightly larger than life, marble statue. And the whole room bleached out, which is what would happen in the dream. The dream would always end with, with the image. She never interacted with me. She was just this seated figure. And, and the, the the dream, and I I got really hot and kind of like nauseous and the room got really white and then there was a guard there and I I don't really remember this part very well but I remember vaguely him and I and that I was and he got me to sit down and I spent a long time it took me a long time to look at her there's a little placket her toes it said the Libyan Sybil I went home I was living in a little one tiny tiny room uh, off Central Park West on the Upper West Side and I went through the park and I got home and I had very little in that apartment, but I had my Oxford English, English annotated Oxford English dictionary. I took out the magnifying glass that comes with it. I put on my glasses and I looked up the word Sybil, which I knew was magical, but I didn't know what it meant. And it said an ancient prophetess, a witch. So I was like, all right, I'm not gonna argue. I, called my friend. I said, do you think they'd still be willing? She said, I don't know, but you should call them. You should go. And I went. I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what they were saying. There were like 50 women in the room. And that was the story I told was how every day there were, every week there were fewer women. And after a couple of months, the announcement was made. This was the coven. I almost ran out the door coven. It's like, well, what did you think was going on? You know? <laughs> <laughs> And I stayed with them because even though I didn't understand what they were saying, I didn't understand what they were doing when they were calling the quarters, when they were invoking the four directions, the elements of the four directions, when they were invoking the divine feminine, the goddess, the table full of statues of goddesses from all faiths all over the world. I gradually began to understand the meaning of what they were doing. And certainly I felt in my heart and my soul. And so after a year, I mean, that was the story I told was the magic we we create, the spells we cast and the magic we I experienced and the relationships with the other women. Interesting, we're having this conversation because after 40 years, I just got a a message from one of the women in my coven that I haven't heard from for 40 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, full circle, right? And the time came for me to be initiated. And I said, yes. And we had to pick a name because you take a name and our, you know, as was the, the tradition was that you would take a magical name. And, um, and I journeyed and I did some magic and I came up with the name Persephone and it didn't feel quite right, but, but I have Scorpio in the 12th house. So I think that was, you know, death and rebirth. It's a theme for me. So I was like, okay. And I went that night to be initiated and boy, and you know, they make you wait. And you're sweating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, my God, you've been through oh, this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Your nerves are dangling. And I didn't read anything. 
there was hardly any material around at that time, but there were a few things. There was some material that Alex Sanders had published. There was a little, you know, you could, if you wanted to go and find some stuff you could, and I was like, no, because that will ruin everything for me. I, you know, I don't want to know. That's the whole point is to not know that you are stepping over the threshold. You are making an act of deep faith. You're making a leap of faith. And I have to trust this, right? It's all about trust. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I, and I'm wandering up and down the bookstore and literally a book flew off the shelf and it was um, the Budapest's book, Women's Mysteries. There were very few books back then. I mean, it was- Oh nothing, yeah, yeah. Nothing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there were those bad books, Mastering Witchcraft, and there was some Scott Cunningham, which was, you know, um, so, and, you know, Starhawk had written The Spiral Dance, but she, she writes in The Spiral Dance. Nobody knows where the charge of the goddess comes from. I mean, hello, you know, that's where yeah. things are, the, that books were, that were being published back then, right? Okay. Right. So, Okay, so uh, there was nothing, but there was that book and it flew off the shelf and I opened it up randomly and I just opened it. And there was Aradia and I read it and I was like, that's who I am. That's, that's my name. That's who I am. And so when you know, the moment came and I had to state who I was. That was, that was what I said. And, and as you know, without disclosing too much, right? It was an interesting challenge to write about the initiation in a way that captured the essence of it without revealing the mystery of it so that it would remain yeah. a mystery for all who would seek initiation, right? You don't want to spoil it for them. Um, and that moment when you make your vows, I found myself making this additional vow that I would help restore the old religion in Italy, which was insane. <laughs> Crazy. I mean, where, you know, what? I'm not Italian, but <laughs> I that promise. And when Book of Shadows came out, a year later, it came out all over the world and it came out in Italy and it was a bestseller. And I went to Italy and I built a big community there over the years. And I've been blessed to have now four uh, initiated priests and priestesses who've been working with me for 20 years. And we have a huge community. We now have 24 people preparing to be priests and priestesses and, and a really huge community. So be careful what you what you, no, be careful what you promise. And that the initiations that I did in Italy launched the second round of the work I'm doing now. That was profound. There was a revelation that challenged everything that I'd been doing up to that point and really has transformed and deepened my work tremendously. You, know, you never stop. I mean, if you're really committed to this path, it is a spiral path right so you retrace your steps and you're covering yeah. 
the ground, but always in new dimensions with more depth and more ascension, with more mystery and more meaning. It never ends. It never no. ends. It's an extraordinary path. It's an ex and that's because it's a praxis, right? It's not a belief system. It's a practice, yeah. at least the way I do it. I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about the success of the book and it really was a very successful book. It was in all the bookstores. It's in libraries. Um, it's everywhere. When you go to signings, especially, you know, when you go to signings now and the book's been out for a while, mm -hmm. do you talk to people who, how it's changed their life and has had an impact of their life? I mean, you must get people coming up to you all the time talking about the book. Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't know what the total book sales are now. Um, I know that when it went out of print, it had reached over a quarter of a million people in America. And then if you figure that for every book, there's a like a two or three to one ratio, like for each book that exists, two or three people have read it. Um, right. Um, and it's funny because at the same time, at the same time that it's had this huge, gigantic impact, it also seems invisible in a way, right? Like if you ask people the top 10 books, it may never appear. It's really odd. It's a this, it's a strange thing, um, but to hear yes from I when I first when it first came out I got out I got bags of mail and I and I couldn't bring myself to open them. I felt overwhelmed, and now I feel terrible, right? That I didn't know how to respond to people, and I was everywhere. And the media push was gigantic. It was gigantic. I was on all you know, major shows, radio, television. I was in every major uh, newspaper across the country. We did like 24 cities, big, small, everywhere. It was astonishing. Um, morning radio, morning TV. It was like, it was amazing. And the book was, you're right, it was everywhere. It was like, you'd walk in the front door of Barnes and Noble and it would be right there on the front table. Um, and it sold really well. We didn't get to bestseller status in the United States in the time frame that makes it a bestseller, which is a shame because we would have made it onto Oprah. She said, if you can make this a bestseller, I'll put you on, but I need that cover. We didn't quite get there. Um, but it, I hear, I hear again and again, now that I'm present on social media because I wasn't for a really long time. So I'm now, forward facing and people can find me. Or I got, you know, a talk, a lecture, a book signing, a class, all over the world that it's the book, what people say is it's the book that changed their life because it confirmed their life. Yeah. Because it affirmed something that they knew, something that they had experienced. I mean, my experiences were quite extraordinary, but, but the capacity to open ourselves to the numinous for it to come to us and come in our dreams and speak to us and reveal itself through methods of divination, through synchronicities, through how our lives unfold in these extraordinary ways. That's true for all of us. And I affirmed it. And, and that was so meaningful to people. It was 
the story that they read that either inspired them to walk down the path or confirmed for them that the path that they felt called to was legitimate and powerful and, and full of grace and magic and that they should not be afraid that 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 sense that they'd had since they were little girls or little boys, you know, spinning in the rain on a hilltop calling the storm that that they were right um, and that there was magic in them and that there was magic in the world and they were meant to be part of it. And I think because I told it as a story that that certainty that I had that even if I didn't know how to write well that that was how I was meant to write it. That because it was a story, I was able to take people, I was aware as I was writing it, that there was a person with me reading over my shoulder. And yeah. they were with me as I wrote. Um, and there was magic in the writing and then there's magic in the reading that so many people have said that the experience that they've had with the book has like triggered the magic in their lives, right? That it has opened the door for them that, that they read it and then all these magical things start to happen. Because I, I write all of my books as a spell. Every book I write is written as a spell to activate magic within people and to open them to the magic that's going on around them. So it's kind of hard for me to believe it. Like when you said those very kind things at the beginning and people say that to me and I'm like, they're talking about my book, my book. No, I, eh. but at this age, I'm like, yes, they're talking about your book and it's time for you to write the next one. Well, that's like, I love to hear that. Um, you were named one of America's 10 gutsiest women by Jane magazine. What was it like to get that appellation? It's pretty great. Um, I shared it with uh, Hillary Clinton that year. Yeah, I, I can't remember her name. The actress that came out uh, sort of triggered the Me Too movement. Um, who was dating what's his name? Man Manson. Mason. Oh, Manson. Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, because. Uh, because it was an affirm it was an affirmation of me. Like I wrote the book to affirm others. The book was an affirmation of my courage and being a lawyer and putting it all on the line. Because that's what I did. When I wrote that book, I put it all on the line. Um, everything I'd worked for, everything my parents had sacrificed and saved, right? To to help me get the best education possible so that I would be safe, right? I wouldn't be at risk the way their lives had been, um, which was particularly terrifying having lived through the depression, right? Yeah. Uh, that they gave me the tools to live a prosperous capitalist middle-class life and I put it all at risk. And so to be affirmed both expanded that risk, right? Because the entire media campaign was exposing me so completely. Um, but it also was an affirmation of what I was doing and why I was doing it. And it helped. It helped. And periodically I've gotten these 
affirmations like the induction into Martin Luther King and the Service to Humanity Award and the um, Person of the Year Award from Kindred Spirit. You know, the, every couple of years, the universe goes, don't despair, Phyllis. You know, keep, keep going. There is value in what you're doing and there is more reward uh, than damage in the risk that you're willing to take. Well, that's very true because in 2015, you were named Vice Chair Emerita of the Parliament of World's Religions. Now you rub elbows with some of the biggest names in religion. How did this honor feel to receive this? And what was your experience been like working with the organization and its members? You've like, for example, you've been a keynote speaker next to the likes of the Dalai Lama. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, I, I was involved with the parliament in, in 1993, the first uh, modern uh, parliament, 100 years after the very first parliament in Chicago. I went as uh, the chair, the first officer of COG, um, despite all kinds of internecine ridiculous pagan politics, we got there and it was our arrival on the global stage and it was difficult. I spent half my time at the parliament fighting with city hall in Chicago because we had been denied a permit uh, to perform a public ritual as part of the parliament. I, I won, we got the permit and I continued to be active in the parliament to attend and to go. It's expensive, it's difficult. You have to pay for yourself. Um, there's airfare and hotels and all this stuff. But I saw immediately that it was this in, invaluable forum in which we could begin to build alliances, that we could begin to challenge the stereotypes, you know, come out of the broom closet, challenge those who impose the stereotypes on us. We'd be doing so essentially in, uh, in a community that was at least respectful, you know, because those are the rules of the game. Um, and so like the court system, you know, there are, are rules of the game and you can step into those rules and demand to be treated with respect and equality. Same thing in the interfaith community. It was like, oh, I could do some good work here. And there were other people as well from the pagan community, not a lot, but a few key people who were doing the work. And we were a tiny team and we were like, okay, we're showing up, we're showing up, we're showing up. We kept showing up and kept showing up. And Angie Buchanan was the first, actually because of the Baha'i, because she worked for the Baha'i temple, they nominated her for the board. And once she was on the board, she then nominated, um, 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 oh my God, I'm having a senior moment. Isn't that terrible? No, I totally understand. From Earth, from Earth Spirit, Andres Arthen from Earth Spirit. Oh, yeah. And um, and then the two of them nominated me. And so there was one, there was a point at which we had actually had, there were three members of the, I don't re usually refer to myself as a pagan. Um, I refer to myself as a practitioner of my right. Euro indigenous ancestral traditions because I have a completely shamanic approach to what I'm doing and that's what it is. So, right. and I began using that language because I found, you know, you have to really choose your words carefully. If you want to be heard and received and understood, you have to speak in a way that people can hear, right? And so if you use the word witch, you know, the, 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 the gates come down, right? And the guards yes. are yeah. and you are not getting in the door. But if you right. say, 
you know, I'm a practitioner of Euro-Indigenous tradition and you start to explain, you know, what that is and people step forward and, and are interested and fascinated to hear what you have to say. And that is, that is called the craft of the wise. Witchcraft. And the gate immediately starts to come down, but you've got your foot in the door and it's not yeah. coming all the way down. So working in the parliament was was like being in the press, being in the media, being public, was a tremendous challenge, but a huge blessing. Um, and and I was voted, I was on the board in 2009 after the Melbourne parliament. Um, and I saw, I had served on other nonprofit boards. I saw a lot of problems with the parliament, um, a lot. And I started to, I rolled up my sleeves and just started working on them. I said, look, I'm a lawyer, I'm a fiduciary and we need to work on these problems. And, and, we, and I was part of the process of, of, you know, sort of getting the organization revitalized, better accounting practices, you know, dealing with messes that had been created and not cleaned up. And my reward really was I was elected vice chair. And as vice chair, I said, okay, my reward is I want a women's task force because we didn't have one. And I want a women's assembly. And I got it. I had to create it, which was quite a thing. And I did it with me, with a, a part-time staff person, Miriam Quesada, who is now full-time on the board, uh, on the staff, who's a brilliant young woman. And the two of us, with help from the staff, created the inaugural women's assembly in Utah, where, believe me, it was not wanted. And yeah, I guess in, the minute I heard Utah, I'm like, oh, that's going to be hard. Yeah, it was brutal, but we did it. And there were 4,000 women and it changed the organization. Wow. Now there will never be another parliament without a women's, with, without women's programming, a women's assembly, attention to women's issues and the goddess on the main stage, she hadn't been, right? Um, and yeah, as a as a trustee and as the program chair, because I was the program chair for the online and I'm the program chair for uh, this year in Chicago in August, that's huge. So I'm helping to determine the theme. Uh, I mean, it's approved by the entire board, but you know, it was my task to, to propose one and what I proposed was a call to conscience, defending freedom, democracy, and human rights. To call the, the highest levels of religious uh, leadership and the grassroots to, to engagement to fight the fascism that is spreading across the globe. So um, my intention after this parliament is to remain on the board. I'll have another three years but to um, hopefully get some more pagans on the board and to, to spend a little less time on uh, organizing uh, the parliament and more time um, on my, my spiritual work because I'm aware of how precious time is and I have some very, very, very important work that I, the, the vow that I made when I was initiated, I made another vow in when I initiated in Italy and I have to keep my promise. So I, 
I have to really, really focus on the work that I've been given to do. That'll come next. So I'll remain on the board and I'll remain active and I'll make sure. Uh, we invited, I asked um, Gus Dizariga to be a plenary mm -hmm. speaker. So, wow. so he will, yeah, I'm excited. I'm, I was like, I need somebody with big intellectual chops. I was like, Gus. So I asked him if he would be a plenary speaker um, on this question of, of the dangers of encroaching fascism and the pagan response to it. He said, yes. So I'm excited about that. And it's going to be a, it's probably one of the most important parliaments that has ever been convened because it is purposeful around probably the single most important issue. I know that the environment is existential, but you cannot address solving the environment if you are under a fascist government. Everything right. goes to hell. It, so, so, you know, that is a, it, it's a battle we shouldn't have to fight and it's a battle that has to be fought and we have to win it. And then we'll be able to address um, the existential crises that, that are confronting us. And that's really where my, my own work is headed. It's trying to provide the spiritual moral compass that has been missing in our conversations about how we remedy the damage that's been done to the planet um, and how you know, what we need, what we need uh, to fix what we've broken. I wanted to ask you about your most recent book. We, I have um, a lot of questions about all your books, but I think that might have to be another show if you're willing to come back. Um, yeah. Your newest book is 2022 Spells for Living Well, The Witch's Guide to Manifesting Change, Wellbeing, and Wonder which came out last year, and it must have been really a difficult task trying to get that published during the uh, quarantine. Now, this is a definitive work on spells to manifest positive change. This book takes a different tact on magic. Can you talk about this for our listeners? Yeah. Um, well, I had no intentions of writing a spell book. I'm, I'm making air quotes for those of you who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I've been blessed. I mean, I, there was magic around ending up at Hay House. Um, I, my publisher had passed away my, and I hadn't written anything for a long time because I was on this spiritual journey, um, that had been precipitated by the initiations in Italy in the early two thousands. And I had stopped, I had done some teaching in Italy, but I had largely stopped my teaching, um, and my, my writing, my public face, because I, I needed to let go of what I thought to be true because I needed to discover deeper levels of truth and meaning and, and method. And, and when I decided I was ready to keep my promise and share what I had been taught by, by the spirits of place, by Mother Earth, um, the epiphanies I'd had, because I'd sat with them for a very long time, and I felt I was ready. I called my agent and she said, you know, your publisher's dead, right? And I was like, oh, I didn't know. He said, well, you'll need a publisher. I said, well, actually, I was kind of thinking about Hay House. And she said, they're new age. I said, yeah, but I think they're ready for witchcraft. She said, well, I'm not calling them until you send me a proposal. <laughs> so good. She was like, I said, okay, I'm ready. I'll write. The next day I opened my email, there was an email from Hay House. Asking, no way way asking me 
if I would do Wicca Made Easy, which was my first book after this long hiatus, this dry spell. I was like, oh my God, she couldn't have talked to them. She hadn't. They had sent the email and they didn't expect me to say yes, because it was a small book, completely off scale with my previous kind of deals. But I'd asked for it. When you ask for something in the universe, gives it to you, right? Right. You say yes. So of course I said yes. And they came back to me. They We did the Awaken the Witch Within online class, which was incredibly wonderful. I mean, the best production values and brought me full on into the potential of teaching online. They did a beautiful job with that. Um, and then they asked me to do um, a witch's tarot deck which is the Witch's Wisdom Tarot, which was an extraordinary project. I journeyed for every card with my artist, Danielle Barlow, who's a brilliant artist and a hedge witch and who happened to know how to journey. And it was so magical. And then they came back to me last year. I was working on the new book and they asked me if I would do a spell book. And I said, a spell book? Because I, anybody who knows me knows that I have a very non- mechanistic approach to magic and spells tend to be very mechanical and I said okay but it has to be my way and they said we wouldn't have it any other way but we need it in two months oh my god two months are you <laughs> kidding me that's what I exactly what I said although I said my goddess are you kidding me and they said no we're serious but we can give you one more <laughs> so I had three months and you know what? It was a real blessing. You know, writers need deadlines. Um, so I knew that I should do it. And I knew that I had to do it my way. And that meant that we started with the, with the understanding of magic that most people don't have, right? If you, spell books are everywhere and they all have this dreadful definition, some variation or other, you know, that, that magic is the, we used to say magic is the art of changing consciousness at will now and then changing events, you know, with your altered consciousness. Now it's, you know, that magic is the art of manipulating unseen or supernatural forces to manifest your intention. That's the definition. It's everywhere. It's, it's wrong. It's just wrong. It's wrong in so many ways on so many levels. And I was like, okay, so we're going to start with, with what I know magic to be. You can have your definition. This is mine. And it's based on more than 40 years of experience. Magic is the flow of, of the sacred, of the numinous, of the mystery, of the undefinable, right? Of the force of life from realms of spirit, from planes, uh, you know, call them what you will, from, from non-ordinary reality, from dimensions to which we are normally oblivious, from spirit into embodiment. It's energy and embodiment. It's the flow of the life force into creation and into all of us. It's the energy that transforms us and changes and inspires and teaches and rips us up by our roots and shakes us by our hair and you know hangs us upside down by our ankles and knocks everything out of our pockets. And and buries us six feet under and then brings us back to life, changed and transformed and made anew. And it is the force of life that pours from us into the world to make our lives a better place, 
and to make the world that we live in a better place. And it's real. And, it, and we are enmeshed in it because everything that exists is participating in its flow. And the way in which that flow works is not the threefold law. It's not. It's that everything, while every living thing, while taking good care of itself, to be healthy and to be happy in ways that make it healthy and happy are simultaneously making the world in which whatever that being lives a better place. That's the magic of nature. That's the magic of spirit embodied by nature. That all living things are meant to be healthy and happy that have a blueprint within them as to how to do that, right? An owl knows how to hunt, a tree knows how to grow the, the, the bacteria in my gut know how to be healthy bacteria in my gut. Everything knows how to take care of itself in ways that make them healthy and happy. And it turns out the net effect of that when they do it properly, according to this sacred blueprint within them is that they contribute to making the world healthier and happier, better for all life. Only we don't do that. And so all of my spells are around, they, they incorporate, you know, they transform basic practices like breathing and grounding and casting circle and, and working with the Sabbaths and working with the energies, the fluxing energies of the moon and the fluxing energies of the earth and the sun. And then for all of the purposes that we need to be healthy and happy, right? They are all about how we bring in, how we open ourselves to this flow of divine energy, how we allow it to work within us to change us, to heal us, to help us, how we learn to work with it, how it shapes us, and then we learn to shape it, and how in casting spells and writing books and having babies and doing podcasts and doing the things that we love, right, that give us joy in the doing, because all of these spells ultimately, including the ones that deal with depression and stagnation and fear, and you know, loss and grief and the need to heal when we're ill, that at the root is a deep joy that is offered to us and in in an experience of being loved when we open ourselves to this flow. And when we create with it, when we cast our spells to live well, to change the things we need to, to bring what we need to into our lives, to create things that the world needs us to create, that we need to make and that the world needs us to make, that not only are we making our lives better, but we're making the world a better place. That's the moral compass. That's the divine credo of how we're meant to live. And so all the spells open us to the this flow of magic, show us how to receive it, how to allow it to change us and heal us. Um, how to work with it, shape it, and, and pour it back into the world, how to make offerings, you know, in gratitude for what we've been given, how to nourish ourselves and how to nourish the world. Everything has an element called act in accord, right? Because so much of magic is this like, I'm going to manipulate and I'll do, you know, I'll, uh, you know, the, do this little mechanical thing here and inscribe this thing on the candle and light it and then blow it out. And then, you know, and then the magic will happen. Well, you know, 
magic's organic. <laughs> magic does happen in this weird way where my agent says, who do you want to, who do you want to be your publisher? And I say, hey house. And the next day, the, you know, the magic manifests. The next day comes the email. Uh, okay. It works like that when you've been doing this for a really long time and you're essentially in harmony, you know, and serving your purpose. You're in, you're in true service. And what you want to do is it's, the universe goes, okay, here, good. We're going to help you. And it can be very, very fast. But things can also take a lifetime. You know, it took me a lifetime to be able to really experience love, to recognize the right partner for myself, to receive it, and to be able to offer it. You know, I had, I had a lifetime of mistakes to come to a place of transformation, magic, and love is the greatest magic. Magic is organic, as well as being transcendent. It's both things. So the, the book is, is different. It is about change and well-being and wonder. Um, and it has many of the things that look typical, like carving a candle, or it has a lot of old traditional magic, like not magic, things that I've got out of grimoires that you know I've had for years, right? many, many years that were old. Um, folk magic practices that were handed down. Uh, but at the heart is this certainty of magic being the flow of the sacred. That it is that, pardon me, that all, that all spells are in fact spiritual practices. They're not mechanical manipulations. You're not dealing with supernatural powers. You're dealing with natural powers, all of which are uh, available to us when we approach them with reverence and respect. And so um, I hope, I mean, you know, that when people read the book that, I mean, I have a very dear Catholic friend who's reading it now and who like is just loving it, right? Because it is speaking from this, not this esoteric and occultist perspective, but from this, you know, deeply universal and sacred perspective that's shared. Um, and the point of the spell is, of any spell is to open us to that, to bring us into unity with it um, and to enable us to work with it, to better our lives and to better the world. So I, it's doing, it's doing well. I wish it was, I wish it was number one in witchcraft. You know, because I think that there's been a real commodification and, you know, I think that a lot of people are drawn to it initially for the power and, yeah. and the theory that with it, they will be able to magically change their lives with no apprehension of what magic really is. Yeah. Uh, and we need to we need to shift our perspective. We need magic as the art of changing consciousness, right? We need to shift our perspective to understand that it isn't all about us and it's not all about instant gratification, you know, and it's not about the new car. It is about, right. about self-care, um, but it's about self-care in a context of the self-care of all of creation. When we, when we make our magic that way, magic really manifests. Um, so I hope, I hope that it will reach many more people and fill their life, that it'll awaken them to the magic that's already in them 
and open them to the magic that's all around them and that they will practice it in ways that are really truly transformative because magic is real and magic really works um, and it's there for all of us. For our listeners, I'm going to put a link to the book in the bio so you can just go to that instantly when you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes. Phyllis, what's next for you? Um, well, I'm doing a lot of teaching. I'm going to do, um, it's going to be odd to do it online, but I'm going to do a shamanic uh, basics to part workshop because people need this tool. It's a, you know, to journey is a profound skill. Um, it works. I created the witch's wisdom tarot by journeying and the deck is so powerfully magical. So the only people for whom it doesn't work are the people who are resistant to it being other, right? That it is a different method that you just, you just simply say, what do I need to know? It will answer you. It will answer you. If you want it to be a Rider Waite Smith deck, it, it, it doesn't work like a Rider Waite Smith deck. Um, so I'm going to be teaching shamanic journeying because the deck was created with that method and it's an integral part of my methodology. It's a tool I think every witch, every pagan, every spiritually seeking person should have in, in their toolbox. So, um, and I'm teaching a basics of witchcraft class that I'm going to do in the second part of the year. The shift network has asked me to, to teach with them. So I will be doing something with them. Um, I've filmed uh, a lengthy interview in some sections with uh, a very prominent um, film company in England that yeah. has, yeah, that is putting together a three-part documentary uh, for cable that should be out, if not this year, the beginning of next year. And that'll be interesting to see the impact, um, the cultural impact. And the most important thing, I'm working on my next book. It's actually two books. One is a memoir about my encounter with the green man and the journey that that precipitated and the epiphany with mother earth and the, the teachings that she gave me. And it's written in a memoir style, like book of shadows. That's long overdue and people really want it. Uh, you know, they're waiting for the memoir. And so that, and with that probably first is a small book, about this epiphany and the principles of creation that were shared with me, the heart at the heart of which is this very foundational truth that all living things uh, are meant to are encoded. They are given the blue, the holy cosmic sacred blueprint within them, how to live, how to be a cardinal, how to be an oak tree, how to be a cairn terrier, you know, how to be. Uh, a buffalo, how to be grass, that all living things are given what they need to know, instinct, intuition, wisdom, to live in ways that make them healthy and happy, and, and to do so in ways that make their immediate environment and the expanding concentric circles of the world itself a better place for all life. That's how nature is actually working. It's, I call it nature's magic. And there are a number of biologists like Janine Benrus who call it nature's magic because it's so extraordinary. That's what's going on in the natural world. It is proof to me of the embodiment of, of 
the of the divine, you know, of God, of goddess, of the numinous, of the mystery. It is embodied energy and form, two aspects of, of one whole. Uh, there is deep morality. And there's a, it's a compass, it's a moral compass and it's a practical compass. It's simple, it's like everything we do, how we, how we grow food, how we use energy, how we build our houses, how we create transportation, how we create economic systems, everything should make us healthy and happy and contribute to making the world a better place for all life. That's the missing moral compass. That's the practical guide to life on earth. That's nature's magic. That's our magic. And that's the next book. And the practices, there are five basic fundamental magical practices that were given back to me by each of the elements. They were like, yes, but you're not breathing right. Let us show you what is actually happening. Now breathe this way. And, it, and you experience the truth of that principle, of that magic. You suddenly are living it and water and fire and earth. And they each said, okay, but you're not doing it quite right. So let's tweak it. And when you do it this way, you experience this profound connection to this web, which is supporting and sustaining and nourishing you. And that asks only that you give back in kind and you experience it physically and emotionally. So that's the next book. It's I can't wait. That's wonderful. That sounds exciting. I'm I'm already ready to read it now. <laughs> this sounds great. It's been a joy talking to you. I know I go on and you've been such a sympathetic and kind guide in your questions. And I've enjoyed no, I, I, I've loved talking to you. And like I could do two or three, five more interviews with you. I love talking to you and, and you've got so much stuff we can still talk about. So hopefully we'll have you on the the a podcast again. I really love getting a chance to talk to you. Thank you for coming on today. It was a joy. And I'd love to do a follow-up with you. Thank you. That was my conversation with author Phyllis Currett. You can find links to her books and personal website in the bio. Next week, we'll be talking with author J.D. Walker, who wrote The Witch's Guide to Witchcraft and more. Please join me as we talk about her life and work. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to having you hear us talk with other leaders in the pagan world. Until next time, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. <laughs>